Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, Richard Seaver music director and conductor James Conlon shares his insight into the contexts and history of Aida, one of Verdi's great works. This recording was created as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators. See LA Opera's Aida at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion between May 21st and June 12th, 2022. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. I'm thrilled to be with all of you and thank you for the privilege of your time as always and talk to you about one of my favorite subjects, Giuseppe Verdi, which you will have gathered by now is a lifelong passion. In fact, it's through the Dora Verdi that I came to love, first of all, classical music and opera subsequently. I want to help situate Aida. I want to talk a little bit about the music, but I want to also put a lot of other things in context and especially context about our time and how we tend to look back at these works. I am a fan of historical knowledge. I am a fan of knowing authentically what a work was written about to the degree that that's possible. And I am a fan of seeing links with our own society because art provokes us to think about our own society, our own lives. I am a little less a fan of assigning political motives or using works to fit them into our narrative of 2000. 22. And I am particularly not a fan of them in the case of Giuseppe Verdi, because I see him as, on the one hand, one of the great humanists amongst the composers who did have messages, but one whom we can actually say relatively little do we know about Giuseppe Verdi from his works. We, we do have historical information. There are stories, and of course, stories of uh, his relationship with Giuseppina Streponi. But he actually was not a person who sat down in any regard or thought to himself, I'm, not, I'm going to express myself or I am going to tell the story of my life through characters. He was an objective artist, and I would posit that it is, is impossible to know about Giuseppe Verdi from his works as it is to know about Shakespeare. They were both in the best usage of the word chameleons. They were able to look at any situation, any story, any narrative, and express it perfectly in, the, in terms of their own art, of poetry and Shakespeare, notes, harmony for Verdi. And Aida is a very interesting work because in a very real sense, is an exclamation point and the beginning of what turned out to be a significant interruption of about a decade. So let's look at the years. First of all, the premiere of this opera in extraordinary in its place. The fact that this opera was written for Egypt is already out of the ordinary, not just for Verdi, but for Italian and non-Italian opera of the 19th century. That certainly gives it an identity that is unique. Verdi uh, hesitated. He had no particular interest in um, Egypt or antiquity. He had no interest in going there. He did not want to go there and even refused the commission several times until he found out that there was serious discussion of giving the commission to uh, Charles Gounod. And believe it or not, Verdi was still competitive and he decided, no, no, I want this one for myself. And so he helped to create a story together with this famous Egyptologist, but he had no real interest really in um, authenticity. 
He wanted to write a good story. He wanted a good story and he got one and he got one with incredible efficiency because he could skip in a way that he, even he who loved concision, he could skip a lot of unnecessary details. Now, Aida is one of the most popular operas in the world and was immediately in the first decade of its existence performed in 50 major cities around the world. It is still to this day with, I think it's some 1100 some odd performances at the Metropolitan Opera, the second most performed opera in the Metropolitan Opera history. One has to ask, well, why is that? Can you tell me, James Conlon, tell us why it's so popular. And I can't, I can only say, you know what? Because it's very, very good. And what do I mean by that? It is very great music. It is dramatically convincing. And it is something that people of all levels of musicality can appreciate. The academic hierarchy that is bandied about, certainly was in the time of my education, that chamber music is the highest form of classical music. Perhaps instrumental music, piano music would be next. Symphonic music would be there. And uh, after you've gone through oratorio and all sorts of other things, you get down to opera. That opera is somehow or other cheaper, less sophisticated for the crowd, not for people of great culture. Well, of course, I emphatically disagree with all of that. And I was glad to hear it identified as one of the um, problematic prejudices that we do contend with in classical music. And I'd like to to add that I agree with Mitchell Morris when he talks about the sense of superiority of German music. I want to read you two excerpts. One is from the article that you will have an opportunity to read online, and another short excerpt from a book which is Peter Conrad's Song of Love and Death on Opera, which is a brilliant book. Here first is a Peter Conrad's comment Verdi set the entire world to music. His operas encompass the theocratic ancient Egypt of Aida and the bigoted Babylon of Nabucco, the imperial Spain of Don Carlos and the licentious Italian Renaissance of Rigoletto, the provincial German courts of Louisa Miller and the contemporary Parisian demi-monde of La Traviata. In him, the operatic world theater becomes truly global. The composer of Macbeth, Otello and Falstaff is opera's Shakespeare. Verdi the populist is an expert on the human heart who commiserates with the slave Aida, the courtesan Violetta, and the cheerily dishonorable Falstaff, with the wandering mendicants of La Forza del Destino, or the universal chorus whispering its prayer for peace in the Requiem. Like the chameleon Shakespeare, Verdi hears everyone at once, distributes music impartially to all, his ensembles compound opposite emotions, as if a god were listening to the polyphonic hubbub of the human race, in the quartet from Rigoletto, Gilda's laments and her father's curses, the Duke's philandering refrain, and Maddalena's chuckling patter entwine and overlap. Musically, they are equivalents. And while they are singing, Verdi withholds judgment. And then I'd like to add my own word to that, which is, it is impossible to draw any conclusion about Verdi's politics, prejudices, philosophies, or his intimate and personal thoughts on the evidence of his operas. He is as inscrutable and unknowable as Shakespeare. He does not moralize. We only know his characters. We do not know him. We know he likes subjects that tell the story of outsiders and society's outcasts and victims. 
Azucena, Rigoletto, Violetta, Aida, Don Carlo, Don Alvaro de Vargas, even Otello. He pits patriotic or societal duties, demands against those of love. We know the stories will end tragically, but Verdi seemed to want us to identify with the protagonists and experience their deaths as personal. Now, in all of this, Verdi actually tells certain stories over and over again, and their historical context sometimes is relevant and sometimes it is not. Aida has been criticized as being too Egyptian and not Egyptian enough. Too Egyptian because we create this illusion of an ancient time, not Egyptian enough because actually when we get down to it, and I think you may have heard some of this earlier today, the historical accuracy of much of this is not only questionable, it's doubtful. And that Verdi was even interested in that authenticity. I think it's safe to say he was not. He was interested in a good story. He was interested in a good narrative. He was interested in the same things he was always interested in. And so what are those things? Those are those passionate human emotions that lend themselves to song and theater over and over again. They are, and we all know them from memory, love, hate, jealousy, mourning, nostalgia, attempts at taking power, the plight of the victims of those who take power. Uh, those are fairly constants throughout Verdi's life, and they go all the way back to the beginnings. And so if you look at Aida through those lens, first of all, I think one could say that it is a created never-never land. This story could have taken place anywhere else, anywhere where there was a powerful regime, anywhere where there was a love story that conflicted with the demands of society on the part of the two lovers. And in this, it does nothing more than fulfill yet again, once again, that myth that has the most profound effect on the 19th century in Italian opera, which is the myth of Romeo and Juliet. And what is that myth? It's a story about ill-fated lovers who have to get past uh, in their case, their families. But it's a love story. It's a love story about the obstacles, and eventually the obstacles turn into tragedy for our lovers. Not just Verdi, but all of the melodramatic operas of the 19th century Italian opera tell that story over and over again. It is amazing that the public, and in case of Verdi, he could he could retell that story every time. And I think that Gerardo may have put his finger on it a little bit because this is popular theater for the Italians. And it's as if, well, if, if you like Westerns, you know what you're going to get if you go to a Western. If you like so-called thrillers, I don't. Uh, you know you're going to get a lot of scary moments that are going to get your uh, adrenaline going. And hopefully you'll leave with some sort of satisfaction at the end of the movie. So the expectations of the, of the public and they proved to be very durable because identifying with all of those powerful passions is, um, is identifying with the most dramatic passions that most of us have felt as human beings. Verdi clearly prefers the victims or the outcasts or the downtrodden. I don't think you'll find any examples where you really sense a great sympathy or a, an approval of authoritarian figures. 
And by the time we get to Aida, and we have been through what was his most important political opera, which is Don Carlo, we can see very, very clearly where his sympathies were. And that is to say, uh, in that case, with the cause and the downtrodden inhabitants of Flanders, and also the downtrodden, downtrodden heretics who were meant to be burned at the stake. And we see that he hates the clergy personified in, in the case of the Grand Inquisitor. Uh, he's very, uh, he humanizes King Philip uh, extraordinarily by showing, okay, he's this authoritarian individual, but we see also that he has, uh, like all other persons, he has a heart and that heart has been broken. So what am I pleading for saying, well, we have to take a little distance from ourselves in trying to fit every opera that comes across our way into pre-described categories of what is important to us. What I'm saying is that we, we only have a limited right, or perhaps you have all the right in the world, I don't have a right, as an interpreter of Verdi's works and Mozart's works and Wagner's works and everybody else's work, I don't have a right to recompose the music, nor to rewrite the story, nor to tell the story in a way that I feel is clearly contradictory to the music and as best I can know to the intentions of the composer. It is true that when a composer gives birth to a work and it goes out into the world, it no longer is the private possession of that composer. And that, especially if it's a theater work, it will have to be recast and reinterpreted, as it were, through theater. But to my mind, there's an honest way to do that and a less honest way to do that. I, for my part, am one who believes absolutely that the final word on the drama is to be found in the nature of the music. And whoever is sensitive to that music um, will not be far from finding the best possible realization in theatrical terms, and who is insensitive or even hostile toward that music, and uh, that exists, uh, by the way, that they will probably harm the integrity of the work. What I'm saying about Verdi is that alongside of every story and we've seen how some of his stories have great relevance. Uh, we discussed Azucena and the, the fate of the Romani people and uh, the fate of women in the society that he's describing. No question that his sympathies go, go, go there. And he shows us that. And he shows us with Violetta and La Traviata that in our, his contemporary society, uh, on a, 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 a play and a book written within several years preceding the opera La Traviata, challenges the public by saying, here, here's a woman who's described as a courtesan, and yet she shows better a better sense of humanity and a greater de uh, degree of empathy than anybody else. And then we get to see Rigoletto, who hunchbacked, deformed, and debased by the society into which he has to work. We see him as a far more sympathetic character than we see those in power, like the Duke of Mantua, who is really Francois Premier of France. So Verdi will make critiques of society from time to time. But the central story is always the same. 
And as it was summed up by George Bernard Shaw, and I, I think I repeat this constantly, but it bears repeating again, there's a tenor who loves a soprano, they love each other, there's a baritone, or I add another soprano or a mezzo-soprano, who do not want them to consummate and enjoy that relationship and are obstacles. And there is a base looking on either benevolently or not. And those are our characters. So when all said and done, what do we have in Aida? We have a tenor. His name is Radames. He's the captain of the guard in Egypt, and he will be promoted to general to fight a war with the Ethiopians. Uh, he's a tenor. He's in love with a Ethiopian slave who is Aida, and she is in love with him. So consequently, we have a love story between tenor and soprano, as always. Where are the obstacles? The biggest obstacle is actually Radames's inner conflict between the demands of being a great patriot, defeating the Ethiopians, and his great love for Aida. And how will he be able to succeed at both? And he will and he will dream that he will be able to succeed at both. And of course, he will fail because Verdi is characteristically pessimistic about most human endeavors. So we will also have the obstacle in the person of Amneris, who is the daughter of the king of Egypt, a godlike figure. Amneris is also in love with Radames. And so we have a classical triangle, one man, two women. Now that often it can be two men, you know, one woman, that, that, that shifts around. But here we have that classical, as long as you've got three people, two of whom have the same love object, you have a love story uh, set out before you. Now we have more conflicts. We have the father of Aida, Amonazro, who is in fact the king of Ethiopia. And she has the same problem. She loves the general of her enemy. She loves the man who has actually defeated her people in battle. So she has this problem. She has nostalgia. She wants to return to her native Ethiopia. She would like to return with Radames. How can that happen? Well, the obstacles, of course, are going to prove to be very large. By the way, the father is a baritone, which makes him fall into the category of uh, obstacles as well, because he will oppose that relationship. And then at a certain point, he will switch gear and try to uh, use that relationship for his own advantage. And then we have our bases, and our bases are, as usual, uh, some kind of authoritarian figure, the king, who's like a god, father of Amneris and king of Egypt, and we have Ramphis, who is the high priest. Now, the priests are probably as much a power behind the throne in this story as they are in Don Carlo, and we're going to see Ramphis as a key figure uh, who will make sure that nothing escapes their attention, and they will keep a strong authoritarian hold on Egyptian society. Now, why do I say this isn't especially Egyptian? Because you could substitute any other locale and have exactly that story. And uh, there's only one other thing that is very striking about this opera that uh, has again been mentioned uh, tangentially beforehand, and that this is an opera of ceremony. It's a ceremonious opera. It is an opera 
built on monumental dimensions, which made it part of its popularity. People like that. We see a greater number of static moments in this opera than we do in many of the operas of Verdi. And that's because the uh, ceremonious aspect of this opera seems to be one of its main motifs, or what Verdi used to call the tinta, color. So we're going to get some magnificent scenes in this opera where nothing really happens. Nothing at all happens in the second scene of the opera. It is a religious ritual. And I was fascinated to hear Parsifal and then play that scene. Now they are very, very different, but it is the same concept. There's a moment for, for stasis. And so uh, a sword is handed from Ramphis to uh, Randames. They dedicate that sword to slaughtering the enemy a brutal thought, a brutal ritual, but we see ritual for the entire second scene. And when we see the triumphal scene, which was correctly pointed out to be totally anachronistic because the Egyptians apparently didn't do that sort of thing the way the Romans does, but Verdi uses anachronism. He uses anachronism to make a point. All Italians knew about Roman triumphs, so that made sense to them. Uh, he will use some music for the priests that is going to sound like Gregorian chant, of course, the Egyptian, ancient Egyptians didn't sing Gregorian chants, a Roman Catholic uh, creation. And even that is doubly anachronistic because um, it's not real Gregorian chant, it's fake Gregorian chants made to feel somewhat like that. So when you hear that ritual in the second scene of Act One, you're going to hear some quasi-Oriental music, more on that in a moment. And then you're going to hear uh, so a Gregorian type of homophonic, almost Palestrina type choral music because it's going to evoke in his public a sense, oh, we know this, we know the religious feeling. So there we have all of the, all of the elements, and that last element is local color. So as was already recounted, Verdi did make some attempt to know something about ancient Egyptian melodies, uh, instruments. In the end, he didn't use any of it. He wrote his own music as he imagined it, and he even said so. He said, I wrote as I imagined it all to, to be. So uh, we get to a type of music that is uh, really a, it's a false oriental quality, but we've seen that increasingly in the second half of the, of the 19th century, especially coming out of France, who of course had an enormous artistic interest in the Middle East and Northern Africa. Now this opera, uh, Aida, has come under withering criticism in the 20th century, criticism of its Orientalism, particularly in the in the works of Edward Said, and uh, that's a very big subject and not one that I will, you know that I can get into here because it takes so much time to discuss that. Um, is this a work that celebrates European colonial arrogance? Edward Said will say very strongly yes. I will say yes tangentially because uh, that was simply a European view in general. But is it specifically Verdi's? vision and does he want to celebrate European arrogance and colonialism? I don't believe so. I think that he's just using the, the local elements as a color in order to tell a story uh, that he's basically been able to make up. I mean, he's not taking uh, a work from Victor Hugo. He's not taking a work from Shakespeare. He's not taking a work from Gutierrez. He's got the elements to make up a story and, and, he, and he has made it up. So now let's go back to the music. Verdi was aware of Wagner. 
we also know that he went to see the premiere of Lohengrin in Bologna the year he was writing Aida. He, he wrote copious notes in the score. He r- reported a very negative reaction. And yet we see small evidence that he was always listening and always culling what could be used. And we will see certain things that one can certainly say, hmm, that may be related to his, his increasing knowledge of Wagner. Uh, but I think that also he was far more influenced that his Parisian life had put him in constant conduct with Grand Opera. And Don Carlo is his most recent product of that, which is really a Grand Opera in every sense of the world, word, and a very adventuresome and adventurous opera. Now, he stretched... He stretched at the edges of everything he knew how to do with Don Carlo and was not satisfied with it and was not satisfied at the time he was writing Aida with Don Carlo. In fact, he was going to return to revise it afterwards. But I think it explains something very important about Aida. Aida is, in many respects, the most classical opera of Verdi in the sense that it respects architecture and form. That architecture is massive granite blocks of music, uh, but it has much of which has a resemblance to old forms, even though he is constantly changing them. And we'll get back to that shortly. uh, He still is able to use them in a very static way. The, the opera has been criticized for that stasis. I think Edward Said called it a mortuary opera of you know, tombs and sarcophagi. And, but subject and content of the music fit together, and it fits a, a constant interplay in various operas between an adventurous work and a work that followed it that tended to consolidate. I think he was consolidating in Aida the stretching and the danger and then uh, the things he, the difficulties he experienced with Don Carlo because he had stretched beyond the, the, the beyond the limits of what, uh, you know, what was normal territory at that time. He, he was consolidating. And so Aida, that's why I say it's an exclamation point. He meant this to be his last opera. And the fact that uh, he barely wrote anything for 10 years and he was not to produce another opera until 15 years is a sign combined with many factors in his personal life, uh, which were enumerated, it creates the end of an enormous paragraph, chapter, if you will, in in Verdi's life. Now, as for Wagnerian influences, I debate most of them. I think that they they are there, but some of that is, that argument is overblown. So let's start with motives, musical motives, that are Wagner called leitmotifs, or rather, I should say, Wagner's followers called them leitmotifs, leading motives. Verdi has motives in, in this opera. They are not many, and they are not used at all in the Wagnerian sense. And what is the Wagnerian sense? Wagner wrote short snippets almost, an interval, a chord, a chord progression, a very short melody. And as time went on, he was able to use them in a symphonic mode. That is to say, they were very flexible. They were very plastic. He could vary them. He could combine them in interesting ways. And that he was basically using the motive as for a, a dramatic identification, but at the same time for musical development. 
Verdi doesn't really develop his motives. He just gives them to us. We get to associate them with a particular character. Uh, and it's usually a character. It's usually not an event. Uh, and then we, they are used as reminiscence. Now, the first one, an important one in this opera, is the first thing we're going to hear at the beginning of the prelude. And that is the motive of Aida. And you'll hear in its intense beauty and harmonic daring. A daring, we may give some credit to Wagner, if we want to. This is, on the one hand, a physical description of this exquisitely beautiful woman. We imagine her as exquisitely beautiful because she's in love and we are in love with a with the people who are in love. And so we, we, we attribute beauty to her, but she has beauty of character. And we see it, it's earthbound in that respect. And yet it's written in the higher violins and it looks heavenly toward another world. And we're going to see that, that another world. So this is Aida's motive. Now that wonderful paragraph sets up a part of the story. Verdi had, had written preludes and overtures from the beginning of his compositional life in the 1840s. You will remember Rossini, the great master of the overture, eventually abandoned it himself because he said he, he didn't see why the public should have to be entertained before the drama began. And so he started using preludes. Verdi did both. In fact, roughly half of his works have Overtures, but very gradually the prelude won out over the overture. And this is a prelude. It's a short, very often slow piece that gives one or two of the main motives of the work and says these are the important motives. He will abandon after Aida, this will be the last prelude he writes because he, there will be no prelude whatsoever to Otello and Falstaff later on. In juxtaposition to that, is not Radames, the lover, is not the father, are the high priests. And they are written in the lower instruments. And instead of going up, that goes down. And it's written in a semi-fugal manner where you have imitation over. That's because Verdi uses the fugue very often in an ironic way because he hated fugues. Where did he learn to hate fugues? In conservatory. Where did he hate, learn to hate academic music? In conservatory. And so he has a, a deep-seated resentment toward the clergy he had it all his life and he portrays them as dark evil wicked base and whereas aida's motive looks toward heaven there's look there's look toward hell and death here is the second excerpt 
And now our romantic lover, Radames. Well, Radames doesn't get a motive, but we meet him with two aspects of his personality. The young man of ambition, military ambition, dreaming of the glory of leading the troops, which he will do. And, and a second look at him as the man who is in love with Aida. Let's first hear him fantasize about that glory he wants to have as a general. Half the aspect of his personality, here's the second aspect, his love for Aida, and listen to how the, the how Celeste Aida goes up as if going to heaven with Aida. And so there you have heard two of the great tenors of our time, of course, Placido Domingo and Luciano Pavarotti. Two aspects of Radames, but he doesn't get a motive. Now our next character gets two motives, Amneris, the most interesting and complex character. She is the daughter of the king. She is passionately in love with Radames, and she is a princess. So in her first motive, we hear both aspects. She has a second motive, which is her anger, her agitation, her jealousy, and at times her vindictiveness. And we can hear that and hear first in an orchestral, uh, orchestral version of that. Listen to the violins. Now listen to it in the way you will first encounter it as a part of a trio with the triangular competitive group, Amneris, Aida, Radames, and it will again be found in the string parts underneath the voices. Mm -hmm. 
So there you get an idea. Now that's it. Those are all of the motives. There are characteristics to the ceremonial aspect of the opera, but it's not a motive. Here we hear the entrance of the king, who's a godlike figure. Here's his entrance. This is Aida's first big monologue. It's called Ritorna Vincitor. And those words were just proffered by Amneris and then the entire court of Egypt. They are telling Radames, go off to battle and return victoriously, which means slaughter the Ethiopians. And Aida has caught herself saying this to him because she identifies so much with Radames that she wants Radames to be victorious. But then she realized what is she talking about? She's talking about victorious over her own people. Now, the Wagnerian concept of uninterrupted dramatic musical flow from the beginning of an act to an end certainly has had uh, a, an influence on Verdi. Now, I don't want to give Wagner more credit than due because he actually started that way, way back in the 1850s. He is moving away from the... Uh, so-called numbers system, where you have a number. It's an aria. It has an introduction, a slow part, a middle section, and an end. And then you have scenes where duets are built like that. And they are all designed to come to an end, usually loud, and to provoke applause and therefore provoke an interruption. But Verdi is going to uh, spend most of his life slowly dismantling that and now in Aida, he's giving us examples of what we can expect in the future. And this monologue, Ritorna Vincitor, is a first example where the content, the dramatic content, actually defines the form. And it's no longer about fitting into predetermined introduction, slow, fast, very fast. So here she repeats herself. Horrible words have come out of my own mouth. Victorious over my father. Taken up arms to rescue me. Back to my homeland. Realm. Should, he, should Radames be victorious over my brothers? Hear the agitation in that tale like I want to see them all paraded in front of us. See my father in chains. Now a new section, hear how it's totally new music. Mm -hmm. 
back my father to me. Joy who want to be our oppressor. And for a second time, she says, what have I said? And now we hear her motive, which is the love motive. And then if we destroy the Egyptians, what happens to my love? means I can forget him. Love. He's like a, like a ray of sun over me. I ask the death of Radames, him whom I love so much. I was never a person more torn apart with anguish than I am. Another new section with a new thought. How can I pronounce the words father and lover? Both sacred to me. For each one of them, I weep for both of them. My prayer becomes blasphemy. Dark of night, my mind is perturbed. I want to die. And now, a prayer, and this will become a semi-motive. Eddie will bring it back later. Umi, that's the plural of gods, have pity on my suffering. Have mercy.
that gods have ceremonious maybe static opera types its direct successor will be the requiem absolutely static and monumental that is the epilogue to this opera and then onwards toward the future and this aria i think exemplifies that future in the revisions of don carlo the revision of simon bocanegra and the ultimate masterpieces of otello and falsa Thank you so much. See LA Opera's Aida at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion between May 21st and June 12th, 2022. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Thank you.